We acknowledge that we are on Treaty 6 territory, the gathering grounds of many diverse First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples, whose footsteps have marked this land and whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. Hello, and welcome back to Research Recasted, the knowledge mobilization podcast. I'm Megan Miskimen. I'm here with Renette Schaubert, and we are joined by our guest today, Dr. Kevin Judge. Dr. Judge completed his Bachelor of Science and Master's of Science at the University of Guelph, and then a PhD at the University of Toronto in Mississauga. His current research interests involve the study of sexual selection in a group of sexually cannibalistic insects and how that competition selects for a range of diverse behaviors and morphologies, as well as the interaction between ecology and mating systems. Thank you so much for being with us here today, Kevin. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Based on your bio alone, I am just very excited to get into uh, our topic today. I think it's a very unique and interesting form of research. Well, I hope I can make it interesting too. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, Kevin, can you tell us just a little bit about this? Well, uh, how far back do you want me to go? (laughs) (laughs) I guess as far back as you'd like to. Well, it it started in my PhD. I worked on crickets. Um, But when I finished that, I was looking for a postdoc project. And my, one of my mentors was one of the, you know, he's, he's pretty diverse in his interests and he studies this group, Cifideris, these Griggs. Um, and I remember him telling me these stories about this crazy mating behavior that they have where they, uh, the females. So just to give you the, the, the quick story is that when the males sing like crickets, they're not crickets, but they sing like crickets, rubbing their wings together. When the female goes to mate with the male, she climbs on his back and then starts chewing on his hind wings. And it doesn't kill him. It doesn't, it doesn't even really hurt him. It takes a bit of energy. He bleeds out. She drinks the blood that oozes out of the wings. Um, and, uh, and that sort of, I mean, it captures everyone's interest. As soon as you tell someone that and you see videos of it, you're like, what the heck is going on? Anyway, that kind of stimulated me to, to think about um, what, how I could use this mating system to actually study sexual selection in the wild. Sexual selection is all about what kind of characteristics um, predict mating success, competition over mates. Um, you know, you think about the male peacock, the typical species, typ- typical animal that uh, you think of when you think of sexual selection, the male's tail. Uh, the size of it, the number of spots, influences how many mating, mates he gets. But to actually see how many mates he gets, you have to sit there and watch him for the entire breeding season. You have to, you have to sit there, and it's very labor-intensive. What if you have a species where every time a male mates, there's a record of it left on his body? So when male Cifideris, and they're not the only species that has this kind of uh, behavior or this kind of adaptation where male donates part of his body uh, and gets gets wounded during mating. Um, there are other insects. Um, anyway, so th- this, this offered kind of a quick and a relatively easy way of assessing male mating success in the field where it's, where it's most interesting. It allows us to ask questions about, you know, if we see, a, a, if we sample the population, and we look at who's made it and who hasn't based on the amount of damage to their wings, we can then see, well, is there anything that predicts whether you find a, whether that male is successful or sexy or not? The, the virgin male's unsexy. Uh, are the sexy ones bigger? Do they sing more? Uh, do they have uh, 
bigger mouth parts for biting each other when they fight, all that stuff. So, so you can measure those things and do what's called a statistical analysis of selection. Take a big sample size, measure a bunch of, bench, bunch of all these males, measure some characteristics, and then do a statistical relationship between the, the character you're interested in and whether or not they're mating uh, or not. And, and that, that's, in essence, that's selection in the wild. And actually measuring selection in the wild is, is, uh, is hard to do. So this kind of offers us a quick and easy way, relatively easy way to, to do it in the field. So, so can you, you mentioned the markings, and I see you have a sample that you, yes. that you brought along yes. with us. Yeah. <laughs> or you can't, us you see, can't really see his hind wings here, but, but uh, yeah. You, so what, are the markings always the same, or are they unique depending on, I guess, how many times? Do, do they scar? Like, tell me about this. All, all great questions. <laughs> and and the, the wonderful thing about working with these insects is that there are actually relatively few people who have worked on them. Um, and they're all related to this mentor that I mentioned before, Glenn Morris, uh, who's an emeritus professor at U UTM. Uh, and basically his grad students are faculty at various places and I've collaborated with them. That we're only people who, who have worked or studied under Glenn have worked on these things. And these are all questions that we're kind of interested in. No one's answered that question precisely. Uh, we, we know that more damage, the wings get basically get chewed down to the bone, well, to the bone, to the, to the stubs, they don't have bones. Um, but actually it raises a kind of a funny story. So Glenn discovered this behavior um, when he first went to collect Cifideris in the, in, in, in the field. The first season he did it, he, he went late in the season and he collected a few of them and, and uh, uh, thought nothing of it. He, he collected them, went back the second season, went back earlier in the season and collected his first one, flipped up the wings to look at the animals. What, what are these? And they're the hind wings. He had collected them so late that they had all been chewed right to the, right to the nub, and, and there were no hind wings left. So uh, that's when he discovered this chewing behavior uh, in, the, in this species. So, so there, there is, they do chew the wings down, and males can mate repeatedly, and they, they get all crusty and gross, and, and they have fungus growing on them after you know, a few, few weeks of having this wounding. But they can survive. Females actually, it wouldn't, maybe not surprising, but females actually have a preference for undamaged virgin males in, in a couple of these species. So it's, it's a lot easier, cleaner to, to chew off a fresh wing than a, than a scabby, gross one. I guess. I mean, like, I, I guess I can relate. Like, I, I don't think I would want anything to do with it. With can a, you relate? A I mean, okay, maybe I've said too much there, but... <laughs> <laughs> So I guess like going back to the, to the sexiness of mm. these insects. Um, so I guess the more bitten off your wings are, the more attractive you are, or I guess a better, a better mate you are. And therefore you have good genes. Uh, you should be happy that your wings are gone. Essentially you should There's, be flattered. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean that, that's the, that's the assumption is that the more wing material that's gone, it uh, means uh, the male's a sexier male. Now, in, in most species, uh, variation in mating success, you know, you can look at it in different levels. Some males never mate. So there's a, there's kind of a, a very, there's variation in terms of who mates. Uh, and then within the, the individuals who, who mate, uh, some, some mating, some individuals can mate many, many, many times. So in looking at the amount of variation amongst males, 
um, that gives you an idea of how strong sexual selection is. If, if there's a really high skew uh, towards uh, only a few males, then you would predict that only a few males would have lots of damage and most males would re remain unmated. Um, if there's not much, not much um, sexual selection, not much competition, then e mating should be much more even across the population. And most males should mate. There shouldn't be so much variation. So we can actually ask those questions and, and, and answer those questions, which is, which is of interest to, to uh, evolutionary biologists because one of the main questions to, in evolution is, well, how, how strong is selection in the wild? Is, is, it, is it very strong or is it a relatively weak force? I mean, we can, looking at some of the extravagant, extreme adaptations of, of certain uh, uh, males in some species, you would predict that it's very strong, but it's yet to be necessarily determined, or at least it's, it's an open question across different species. So that's one of the things we're looking at with these, with these animals. So, yeah. So what, uh, what are you able to, I guess, uh, deduce now from some of the information that, because, because it sounds like there's a lot of questions, like you said, there's not a lot of existing research that's been done on these, uh, on these insects. And so have you been able to maybe like not solve any of these uh, problems or, or answer any of these questions directly, but have you been able to sort of notice any trends in your research as of yet? Well, so there's a couple of ways to answer that. First off, um, it depends. <laughs> it's always, always the answer. Um, so I, I, uh, I was involved with uh, a student at Illinois State University, a collaborator who helped out with collecting some of these, these bugs. Uh, his student, so Jeff, Jeff Ower, who's now doing a PhD, uh, his master's was looking at uh, one of these species, and uh, he found some consistent selection on males. He was particularly looking at song characteristics. So Jeff did this research. He he found uh, some interesting interesting results, more in terms of the what we call the shape of sexual selection. Um, that selection appeared to be more stabilizing on certain characteristics. So it was the average song characteristic. I won't get into the details. Uh, rather than extreme levels of of a of a song characteristic. So it's like saying with the the male peacocks, it's sort of the middle of the road peacock tail that gets the most, not the one with the, the, the most, the largest train, the, the most spots. Um, and my interest is more in the morphology. So looking at uh, what body shape characteristics um, makes a successful male. Um, and that research is ongoing. So I've had a one. I've had one undergrad student do a, a preliminary study, and and the answer that she got out of the analysis that she did for for one species was, it really depends on where you look at these, uh, what population you look at. Um, different populations have different patterns, which is which is also really valuable and interesting information because um, that suggests that. Local conditions really matter, which is what you'd predict from selection in the wild, that the local conditions where a male is, is competing, where he's living, set the conditions under which he's going to be successful, which is, um, which, as I said, is predicted. But it, it's also, it suggests that how strong, how strong can selection be if 
if females are selecting different characteristics in uh, this population, but different characteristics from this population over here. And if those populations are exchanging genes, then it suggests that there's not going to be extreme adaptation in, in one direction or the other. It's going to kind of all even out in the wash, which is, which is uh, it's interesting. Yeah. And so I want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier on. Um, you mentioned something about the acoustics. So I want to know, uh, before these insects bite um, the male wings off, do they warn them? Do the males sing to them? Do they, like, is, is, tell me more about the acoustics that are involved here in your research. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's even more interesting uh, to me <laughs> and hopefully to you. So the, the, um, the male sings, and uh, for many years, uh, researchers who studied the hearing ability of these insects, um, they couldn't figure out how females could actually hear the song, because the song is actually at quite a high frequency, around 12 kilohertz. And when they studied female hearing sensitivity, they found it was peak peak at around two kilohertz, much, much lower. Um, turns out that that was probably an artifact of how they were, how they were doing the experiment. Um, but still, no one has really been able to, or very, there's one study that's been able to play back song uh, to females and have them actually approach the song. So the song, uh, on the flip side of that, when individual males uh, compete for access to females, they also compete directly with one another. And in these insects, they do that quite voraciously. They fight. Uh, and it's like MMA. Um, so they, when they um, encounter each other in the field, it, uh, they sing at each other first. And they, they sing um, really, really loudly and persistently at each other. So the song uh, may provide a, may function primarily as an aggressive signal to start and less so uh, an attractant. It probably does attract the female. It probably does give her a cue. But these, these, this species actually uh, breeds mostly on the trunks of trees, which is a relatively small area when the male sort of sits up there on the side of the tree and singing and females climb the tree during the night. Um, so they're kind of being channeled. And they go up to the, the canopy. We still don't know exactly what they're doing. We think they're maybe feeding on pollen and maybe insects that are attracted to the pollen and other things up there. And uh, then come down. And males are positioning themselves, it, it appears, to be kind of in the way. So when females go up, they're in the way. And the female bumps into them and they, they mate. Now, when the female climbs on the male's back, she starts chewing on his hind wings. And the male has a another organ on his back called, well, it's been named a gin trap, which basically looks like, um, you know, those little things that you use to remove staples, little claws? Yeah, it's, yeah. It's that vicious looking. <laughs> it's on his, uh, two segments of his abdomen have these, these spines, uh, recurved spines that are facing each other. And when the male, when the female climbs on the male, the male's back, he lets her chew for a while, and then he takes his abdomen and kind of clenches it telescopes it together and these claws latch into the female's belly and they actually puncture the female's the, the belly uh, cuticle and you can find females in the field that have puncture wounds on their belly it's really uh, at that point what it looks like when you watch the mating uh, the, the, the 
the activity appears to be less um, less cooperative and more of a struggle at that point. So the female still wants to eat, and she will keep chewing, uh, but she starts, sometimes she chews off the male's hind legs because he, what he does at that point, he, he start, takes his hind legs and starts to push her away from his, his wings. We don't know exactly what we, we infer that maybe he's trying to conserve the amount of wing material that he's still got left. Um, and by pushing the female away, she's, trying, she's struggling to eat his, his hind wings. He's pushing her away. Sometimes you find males that are missing you know, half their hind legs. Uh, and it's blackened like it's wounded. And uh, we think it's because the females chewed his leg off. <laughs> um, so in conjunction with that, it appears like the, the, male, ha the, the male and female genitalia engage uh, they copulate, the male produces another nuptial gift, a, a sort of proteinaceous gift that he secretes along with the sperm packet, and then, the f then he releases the female and they go their separate ways. Um, and so we're interested in all of that, <laughs> all of the, the behavior. There's no, we don't know whether there's a, a signal that passes between the female and the male uh, acoustically. I suspect not, um, but... Um, it may just rely on when they actually, uh, the, when they separate may just rely on when they, they actually achieve copulation, so. Well, Kevin, I think, I just have to say, I'm, I was really uh, nervous to hear about the <laughs> stapler remover uh, body part, but I'm actually really relieved that the female isn't the only one doing damage here. Uh, the male sounds like he's, you know, <laughs> he's able to stand up for himself a little bit. At least he's not the only one, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, so that, that all is, is like, that's, that's a lot, first it, of all. It is. It's a very, um, it's very evocative. It, it, uh, it's it, very striking to watch and, um, it, uh, you know, it just, it, when you see these things, you just think what's going on. There's so many questions that come up. So, yeah. And that must've been something that, that triggered, like you said, the gentleman that you, you'd met in your PhD. Yeah, absolutely. Glenn, I mean, that that has he's been fascinated with these these critters uh, his uh, his his whole academic career essentially yeah. and then and then that was obviously transferred yeah. to yourself so yeah. it's it's just very I still I still want to say that it is so interesting to me I think first and foremost that considering all of the details and and how intricate and how really just sort of out of this world these these animals or sorry these insects appear to behave. Um, considering that there's not as much research done on it already up to this point, right? Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's, it's surprising. It's not surprising. Uh, they're not, as far as we know, they're not a pest, right? So um, they're, they're fairly, there's only three species that we know of in this genus uh, around the world. They're only found in Western North America. They, they sing at, in the evenings in the sort of in the Rockies and in mountainous areas, very, uh, not very populated. Um, so they're not well known. Uh, I've gone to parks and, and, uh, and asked about them and the people who work at the park have no idea that these things are there. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I think as opposed to something, um, something that might be a pest or, or, uh, or something that's more of a genetic model, model system where you get more research because it has some biomedical kind of application. This is a, it's 
very curiosity-driven research that um, that doesn't have any direct application per se. Um, yeah, like like you said, it's it's like they're not really bothering anybody, yeah. and they're not really outwardly or showing any outward as of as we know this far benefits to to us. So we we sort of don't care what they're doing, yeah. or at least yeah. at least we don't know what they're doing, so we don't think about them, right? Yeah, yeah <laughs> so, exactly. It's yeah. yeah. So it's very interesting that 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 you sort of. Uh, are one of the uh, the first and foremost people who've t- taken a sudden interest in this in this creature. So yeah, hey, they're they're um, because there's so few uh, few people working on them. It's it's really just makes the the questions the questions are very basic. So um, you can kind of make headway in a in a you know relatively easily. As I say that advisedly, it's not that easy because. Um, they are. It does take quite a bit of work to get out there, and and you know you're out in bear country at night uh, sampling them. They, you can't raise them in the lab either, so it's not as not as easy as some of the other model systems we work with in the lab, crickets and uh, things that you can raise on cat chow and stuff. So I didn't realize that you couldn't do you couldn't actually observe them or raise them in the lab. You, that, so this is all field. Well, you work. can you bring we bring them back to the lab, but we can't raise them in the lab. Yeah. So so that's that makes it difficult. You can't uh, you can't raise a generation. We we actually think that they have a 3-year gen, uh, generation. 3 it takes 3 years for them to to mature to adulthood. Um, just based on timing, they they breed in a relatively short window of window during the season. It's cool, and um, when we find them breeding, there's not much time before the winter comes on. So we think they actually they get laid as eggs, and then they spend an entire next year as a juvenile, and then they mature the following year, or maybe another year after that. So, so we haven't had much success in in raising them in the lab, which is which is unfortunate. But uh, it does mean that we get to uh, we have to get out in the field, which is which is wonderful. Yeah, I, I I can only imagine it's it's probably not that not that there's anything um, negative about being in a lab, but it must be interesting to actually be able to observe these creatures in their natural environment. And um, you mentioned something about a, a mating season. So when is their mating season? You mentioned it was quite small; it was a short window of opportunity. So yeah. so when is it? So uh, it depends on latitude. Uh, lower latitudes earlier. Um, the three species that are found in North America, the, the one that's found in Alberta starts breeding sort of early, late June, early July, and they go till mid-July, end of July, the, the last stragglers. But some of these, that's amazing about these, these things, the other species, um, the smaller species that's found in BC as well, um, that we've worked on, uh, they start earlier in the season. They'll start breeding in May, and sometimes when it's still, there's still snow on the ground. So these are, these are um, ectotherms. They, they have to, uh, they can't produce their own body heat. Um, so they take on the environmental temperature. Glenn has recorded uh, males singing uh, at an air temperature of zero degrees. So they're exquisitely adapted to cold, which is really neat. So they breed, you know, very early. And then they basically disappear. And you only find them if you happen to turn over a rock. Uh, you might find a, a, a female or, or a male or a juvenile underneath a rock somewhere. Um, and the other, the other neat thing that one thing that I'm really interested in trying to figure out, I've, we have one observation from one, one of these, uh, the, this other species of a female taking care of eggs. So they, you, you don't know this, but 
in in uh, Orthoptera, crickets, katydids, uh, and grasshoppers, uh, females have ovipositors, and in in the crickets and katydids, which are closely related to these, they they lay their eggs with this long ovipositor, and it's adapted to whatever substrate they're laying their eggs into soil or plant material. These things don't have ovipositors. In other insects, not having an ovipositor is an indication that females actually uh, just drop the eggs on the ground um, or take care of them. So we don't think that they just drop them on the ground. Um, we, we have, I have one anecdotal observation of a female actually caring for eggs. Uh, and that's something I'd really like to, to, to look into more at some point. We, again, we can't raise in the lab, so it's very, very, uh, it's, it's kind of frustrating from that perspective because there's, there's lots of interesting questions with that. So you mentioned ovipositors. I just want to go back to that. That yeah. That is like, I want to say like a, a membrane sort of sac that they can keep their eggs safe in. Is, no, is that it's what more, you mean? No, it's more like, a, think of it more like a syringe um, or a pair, pair of chopsticks, essentially. So they use the this this uh, the syringe to inject eggs into something. Oh, I see. So oh, okay. Into the to soil. keep it safe. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so can you tell us a little bit about this anecdote that you that you might have or where yeah. you, you think you saw a female yeah. actually caring for her eggs? Yeah, we were, we were, uh, this is the first summer when I was, when I was starting out working on these things as a postdoc and we were, uh, we were collecting them and we collected a bunch of females and we were going to do a behavior experiment with them. And after we'd finished that, we kept them in, um, in containers with, uh, deli, tall deli containers with dirt and, uh, just thinking, you know, give them a chance to do their thing. And a bunch of the females dug down into the dirt. And because the deli containers were clear, you could kind of see some of them dug chambers next to the, the, the side of the container. And one of them, there was this nice window. And you could see, I could see the female in there and there were a bunch of eggs and she was kind of taking her little mouth parts and cleaning them or, or at least touching them, um, maybe cleaning off fungus or, or turning them and making sure they were, they were, um, they were okay. And I decided to just, uh, leave her alone. Uh, but unfortunately she must've died cause I, I left them alone. And then when I went to actually dig, dig, uh, dig them up and see, uh, she was gone. And, and we had just dug dirt from the, the ground around the, the research station and there were probably worms in there. And they, once she died, they, the worms must've eaten everything in there. So as worms do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I didn't, I didn't have a, I didn't take any photos. Unfortunately, I was real. I'm, I've been kicking myself ever since for not documenting it, but, um, I hope to get that chance. We, we try every year, whenever we get a female, we try and get her to, to lay eggs in the lab. But, and I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert at all, but that seems like very unique behavior for an insect. No, it's not. That's the, that's really? the, yeah. So I, I teach entomology and we, uh, I have a whole lecture on parental care. Um, parental care is not, I mean, it's not common in insects, uh, like it is, well, mammals and birds, every species has parental care, mm -hmm. males, females, both. It's, it's always, there's always care in insects. They're much more interesting. Like fish are also really interesting for parental care because not every species does it. So it, it, it raises the question of, what are the conditions that favor the evolution of parental care? So insects are wonderful for that. They're, 
So I'll give you some common examples of, of uh, or at least one common example you may have heard of, earwigs. Do you know earwigs? I do. They freak me out. Well, but they, go on. They, the <laughs> earwigs are, the European earwig, which is an invasive species, <clears throat> they're a model system for studying parental care. They, really? Uh, they, uh, the, the mothers do an amazing job. They, they dig a little, um, little burrow and they take care of the babies. They defend them. Uh, they keep them clean. Uh, they hatch and hang out around mom. They don't, I don't think they they don't provide food not to say uh, per se, but they they uh, they take care of them until they're ready to go off on their own. Um, the Royal Alberta Museum. If you go over to the Ro the Ram, uh, they have that bug room, and uh, they have a a tank, an aquatic tank with a species of giant water bug, uh, Bellostomatidae. Um, these giant. They're called toe biters sometimes. And those those are those are um, another model system, but uh, they're unique because or they're a little bit rarer because it's actually the male that does the the care exclusively. Uh, the female in that species, at least, glues the male the her eggs on the male's back, and he keeps them aerated and and oxygenated um, because they're so large they need constant oxygenation. So um, there are a bunch of other. Uh, I I have a. So I'm really active on uh, iNaturalist, a website uh, for documenting uh, natural history observations. And I started a group called, uh, well, it's Parental Care. And, uh, you know, just to document any, any observations uh, people post where you can see a, a parental care going on, it gets, it gets um, listed under that group. And we've got thousands of, of documented observations of, uh, of parental care and arthropods. Wolf spiders are a classic example. You, you, there, there are uh, hundreds of observations of wolf spiders. The female carries around the egg sac, and the egg sac, the the babies hatch out, and they climb on the on the back of the female, and she gets covered. It looks like, you know, if you're not you're not a fan of spiders, then it it just kind of makes you feel like you're itching because <laughs> they're they're like climbing and you've, there's wonderful macro photos of these things climbing right over the female's eyes and, wow. and you just wonder like you know every time you know you you think you know your kid is annoying you you think well what happens if you had like four dozen of them and they were just <laughs> like in your hair they try being a wolf spider mom for a <laughs> exactly, day yeah <laughs> exactly it's pretty amazing so yeah there's lots of lots of examples so not rare but really interesting and so that's that's one of the reasons why we're we're um why I'm particularly interested in, the, in this this uh, this uh, bug. They, it almost seems like an embarrassment of riches. If if they had parental care, it's almost like how much cooler could they possibly get? Um, I mean, there are they they do also produce a, an ultrasonic alarm call, which is which is pretty amazing too. So, um, lots to learn about these things. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Yeah, I, I still, I'm just still very, uh, very glad that you brought us a little sample yeah. for us to, for us to observe here. I, I love yeah. that. I think that's the first time on the season we've had someone bring a, a show and tell <laughs> item <laughs> to an episode. So, yeah. so I'm really happy to see that. Um, unfortunately, we are coming very close to the end of our time now. Uh, although I would love to continue talking about these, these wonderful creatures. Um, but, but before we go, uh, is is there anything else that you'd like to add? Anything else you'd like to touch on, or maybe let our listeners know about um, things they should look for? <laughs> oh, I, definitely. I think I think um, you know 
just in line of uh, iNaturalist, I think iNaturalist is really neat because it, it allows people to get involved in the scientific enterprise um, documenting nature. You don't have to have anything, but everyone carries around a cell phone. Cell phones take pretty good pictures. Um, posting photographs to iNaturalist is really interesting. And, and what's fascinating about it is you can get a lot of cool, not just the location of particular things, but behaviors like parental care, like predation, uh, competition, all sorts of cool behaviors. And, and so researchers like me love it because um, you can, you, you just, it's like having field assistants all around the world collecting data for you. I never even it's, thought about it that way, but you're right. Amazing. Uh, and it's super fun because you you get to kind of you know travel the world and look at nature. Uh, so I think it also fosters a, a general awareness amongst the public. I think the the neat thing I, I was talking to a, a a friend Matthias at um, at the the Ram a little while ago, and he he was he was just amazed at he's also interested in iNaturalist and and he studies wasps and wasps are a notoriously difficult group to 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 study and and to um, and tend to be kind of a uh, a narrow focus for a lot of a lot of people and, and not widely known. And what he's just been blown away with the, the 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 amount of interest from the general public and this thirst for his his words this thirst for species taxonomic information. What is it? Where is it found? Distribution? All that basic just basic information. Uh, people are just hungry for it, and uh, that's a real anecdote, a antidote to the um, to this this idea that uh, people just aren't interested in nature, and it's you know, it's all for museums and um, and for just stuffy academics. And this iNaturalist and and other websites like it are are really um, are really kind of opening up that that enthusiasm, which I think is fantastic. So I, I try and I try and uh, and and um, cultivate that. Like when I interact with people on iNaturalist, I try and, and um, give them some tools, you know, give them uh, justifications or some tools on how to, they can identify things themselves and try to spread that knowledge out because, uh, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty neat. Yeah. And, and just to clarify, iNaturalist, is it just a website or can you use it on your phone? Yeah. Is it an app? Yeah, there's an app. Uh, and that's probably the most, the, the way most people use it. But um, yeah, website and it's, it's a, uh, it's a, it's run out of the Smithsonian. It's it's quite a, a well. I think it's rel relatively well funded, but it's a big, big group now. And it, there's, um, it's global, um, and there, I think there are now over eighty million. Ob I forget what the what the number is. Oh wow, hundred so million observations of nature out there, and so it's all it's big. There's lots and lots of of information out there, and it's a constant. Uh, it's a constant um, uh, uh, occupation to to help identify those those records up there um, on the on the website. So we'll be sure to put a link to it in uh, yeah. this episode's yeah. description. Then, uh, in that case, and I'm definitely going to download it after. I, <laughs> I think. Cool. Um, with that, uh, thank you so much for being on the show today, Kevin. Thank you for telling us. Um, as much as you can in this time that we have about these wonderful insects and even more. Um, and yeah. Thank you very much. That, that was, that was real, really fun. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. It was always a good time. <laughs> 
All right. Well, that's it for today's episode of Research Recasted. If you think this podcast can change the world, you can visit Research Recasted on your favorite podcast platform to find new episodes every two weeks. Also, don't forget to check us out on Instagram at Research Recasted, where you can leave a like, give us a follow, or send a message if you have any follow-up questions from today's episode. This has been Research Recasted, a knowledge mobilization podcast brought to you by the Office of Research Services and the Faculty of Fine Arts and Communications here at McEwen University. Research Recasted is hosted and produced by Megan Miskiman and Renette Schaubert. Music is by Dylan Cave, with sound design and editing by Renette Schaubert. Research, copy editing, and scripting are by Megan Miskiman. Our executive producer is Ray Barry. 